0: Somewhat. I like to think so anyway. <laughs> All right, guys. So, welcome to the JPS podcast, episode number two, with Mr. Brad Loomis from 3D Muscle Journey. Brad is obviously a coach at 3DMJ, a natural pro bodybuilder, and an elite level power lifter. And you've been coaching for how long now, Brad? Let's see. It's two thousand and seventeen now, so it's been about seven years. Seven years. So, a lot of time in the trenches. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into coaching, Brad?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I thought it probably um, probably the earliest time that I started, you know, quote unquote, coaching was probably when I started my gym, which was uh, two thousand and. Let's see, when was that? I guess that was about two thousand. About 2008, 2002, something like that. Um, not coaching in the, 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 the format that we are familiar with now, but uh, you know on the floor, training clients, you know, like you and a lot of your group do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was probably about you know, between 2000 and 2002, I would say.
0: And so you are in the gym, correct?
1: Yeah, I own my own facility for about that, ten years.
0: Yeah, ten years. Wow, that's awesome. And what was it called?
1: It's called Healthy Bodies Fitness. It was just a uh, small little, you know, almost could be considered could have been considered a studio gym, but it yep. served our, our little town quite well. Yeah. Um. And, uh, and and yeah, just had the basics. You know, nothing, nothing fancy, nothing. Uh, yeah. Nothing that you would compare to and some of the, to today's extravagant, mm-hmm. you know, facilities for sure.
0: And what drew you to wanting to buy a gym in the first place? If you weren't already coaching, we obviously lifting and training well before 2002?
1: No, not really. Not really yeah. at all. I was, uh, you know, I was certain that you know, in that period of time, I was going to be a, uh, an executive in a hospital administration. I was an x-ray tech at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did all three modalities. I did uh, x-ray, I did CAT scan, and I did ultrasound. Um, and I was the manager of a, of a small department at a small hospital. Um, but I just kind of got into lifting a little bit, you know, just kind of recreationally. And then I found out I was diagnosed in 2000, no, 1997, 1997, 1998 with a, um, what could be a severe spine abnormality. Uh, it's called a spinalist. Don't line up and they kind of shift like this, you know? Um, and that really kind of lit a, a fire under me to get yeah. in shape and I was chubby at the time I was not very strong um and yeah that was really the motivation you know to get me lifting and then not long after that you know it would just kind of um evolved you know into just lifting in my spare bedroom and mm-hmm. you know kind of just learning about things like we normally do you know off the magazines and well, at the time there wasn't internet so you got to keep that in mind yeah <laughs> So, but yeah, just, lift, you know, written at magazines and, and buying different books and things like that. And then pretty soon I, you know, started the gym, uh, healthy bodies, fitness, started training folks. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was, I, I would say the catalyst to me really getting into lifting was when I got diagnosed with my back abnormality. Yeah. Um, yes. and then getting into the coaching aspect was, was more so. Um, I guess just encouragement from my coworkers at the yeah. time. You know, they saw me talking to people, you know, in passing and, and they saw that my body was changing, so they mm-hmm. were asking me for advice and my coworkers just basically said, You need to think about changing your line of business. Yeah. <laughs> they said, You're really good at what you do and what when you talk about it, you know. And and so they said, Yeah, you need to you need to think about going that way.
0: And do you think that your time in the trenches working with people one-on-one has helped you get a better understanding of how to coach somebody online.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Just, just that interaction with people Mm. day to day, you know, just dozens of people, um, not always happy people. They're sick, you know, Mm. um, sometimes, you know, really, really injured. um, but I just, again, through the encouragement of my coworkers, I guess God just gave me the ability to to, to be able to, I guess, just coach people for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my uh, coworkers at where I work now is a, a nurse. Um, they come down in the middle of the night with these patients, you know, that are, are not exactly in their best. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're got tubes in their mouth and, you know, they're not very happy and. and I managed to coach this this elderly lady onto the the, the table because uh, she was not wanting to have her CAT scan done. And this nurse says in his southern accent, you know, from from obviously from down south somewhere, he says, you know, Brad, I believe that you could coach a one-legged man in a butt kicking contest. You
0: know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of one of those God given things that I was, yep. I'm able to to coach people and, and able to you know talk them through. Challenging things, you know, and yeah. things that uh, um, you know might not be um, very understandable to them, and you know, I'm able to get a good get the subject across to them in a language that they understand.
0: Yeah, for sure. And what are the, What are the obvious um, and not so obvious differences between working with someone online versus working with someone face to face? And how do you um, how have you transitioned from Working with people one on one, face to face, to then having to coach them online.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the big differences is just kind of an innate um, uh, difference between the the people you know that we that 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 we're coaching. Yeah. You know, coaching them face to face, you know, um, in in the gym on the floor, so to speak. A lot of times, these are not um, experienced weightlifters and athletes. You know, Um, they're just. People that, you know, want to lose some inches, you know, and, and, and tone up, you know. Yeah. Um, and so those folks, you know, it, it's obvious that you they need a lot of hands on help. Yeah. You know, they they need to understand good posture, you know, and and, and be able to see um, and then, you know, have cues talk to them, you know, hands on. Whereas the athletes that, you know, we coach now, we don't have very many of those, you know, if any, you know, yeah. if they're, if we do this, it's one, a blue moon and it's usually a one-off consultation. So that's a big difference yeah. between those two people, Completely you know, that different you're, demographics. That you're coaching. exactly. Yeah. You know, we don't really need to teach, you know, if you were my client, I wouldn't have to teach you, you know, yeah. how to, have a deadlift and how to squat and how to do, you know, the different lifts. It's just a matter of programming you, yeah. you know, yeah. Um but you know I think the the one of the big things that's helped uh, me as a coach online uh, is is just technology you know being mm-hmm. able to make a vlog for somebody yeah uh, that has been a, a, a game changer you know for for me anyway mm-hmm. and that's not something that I came up with you know that was something that that Birdo started yeah. doing yeah uh, and Alberto started just sending vlogs with clients with their first initial, protocol when we very first yeah. send them the program to kind of explain it to them. And then after that, we just kind of started to run with it. We started interacting with our clients that way. yeah. And that's, to me, that's invaluable. That is really invaluable in, in, in coaching the client. Because um, not only can you, you know, explain them to things and then they can hear intonation in your voice and they can see your expressions. You know, a lot of times they say that 60% of communication is just in facial expressions and mannerisms, mm. you know. Um, but then also I can, you know, for my bodybuilding clients, I can show them posing. You know, I yeah. can stand, I can say, okay, on the side symmetry pose, we need to get this shoulder, you know, yeah. into yeah. view. You know, when you're coaching your, your, your power lifters, you can say, you know, you need to work on keeping, you know, your butt down just a little bit more and keep everything moving in yeah. unison. Yeah. You can show them that, you know. Um, so yeah, that's been a game changer, you know, for, for me personally. Hmm. Because that's how I communicate best. I just, as you can tell, Jacob, I just sit here and ramble.
0: Yeah. You know? It's, <laughs> it's perfect.
1: And I get, I get a lot of information, yeah. uh, you know, in just like a two or three minute vlog, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And um, you spoke of your back um, injury and abnormality being the catalyst for you getting into the gym. Um, how does this impact your training? And, can you give us a bit of a background as to you know what scoliosis is, um, spina bifida, and how you've had to manage your training accordingly?
1: Okay, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it's something I was born with, you know, more yeah. than anything. It's just kind of the way God made me. So it wasn't like I incurred an injury or you know some sort of a traumatic event, you know. Um, the the scoliosis is really the least of my issues, to be honest with you. I mean, my my mm. back's just crooked, you yeah. know. Um, so I, I mean people a lot of times will ask me if there's something wrong with my back because I'm walking like this, you know, and it's, it's, there is nothing that's painful. Uh, I'm just crooked, you know? Mm. Um, And so that, you know, it's, it's not a big deal when lifting. Little things make a difference. You know, when people, when they see me squat, the bar is crooked. The bar comes up like this, I descend down the bar straight, you know, and as I come up, it's, it's like this, you know, and that's just because my back is crooked, you know, and it's, that's just the way it kind of goes. That's not really a big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, the spina bifida, you know, that's nothing severe. Yep. You know, my very last vertebrae didn't close. So you know, mm-hmm. when you're when you're forming in the womb, your vertebrae they come together and they close, and then they come and they jet out yep. like that because of those bumps, those spinous processes that you can see, you know, on your on your back. Well, just the very last one didn't close; it just stayed open like yep. that. You know what I mean? So the skin closed and all the muscles closed and everything else is, is the way that it should be. Just that last one didn't didn't finish closing, you know. Um, and even my, my neurologist at the time that I was diagnosed said, you know, that's not a big deal. He said, it's just, you know, that's almost like having brown eyes compared to blue eyes, you know. Yeah. Um, now, the, the spondylolisthesis, you know, the one vertebrae kind of being slipped forward yep. in the other one, that is is the true concern, you know. And really, to be honest with you, that's a lot of my height loss. Is from that you know because I was about five nine and three-quarters almost five you know ten in high school now I'm like five eight yeah and it's just because that vertebrae has been kept slipping forward and so I'm just shrinking 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 you know Um, and so that could potentially be the area that uh, could be of my demise at some point because if you've got the, the the bottom you know for Raymond that a nerve goes through this way is a horseshoe this way on one vertebrae? The other one is sits on top. Well, mine's not like that. It's sitting like this, yeah. you know. So I have to really concentrate on posture. I do a lot of my work standing, um, just to make sure that this, since it's slipping, is open as yeah. much as, as, it, as it can be, you know. Hmm. Um, and so you know, it doesn't really affect my training, believe it or not. Other than I can't be even when I was younger. I could not be super super aggressive. You know, yeah. which was probably kind of limited my, my potential, you know, as far as my strength goes. And I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll have maybe I, I could have a five hundred pound squat now or a mm. six hundred pound deadlift, you know, instead of a four fifty and five fifty. Um, just because I couldn't be as aggressive as I wanted to be. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. You know, because sometimes when you're going at it that hard, you know, you you do tend to yeah, injure the yourself. Risk of so I can't be yeah. quite as aggressive. Um but yeah, otherwise, you know, I gotta pay a little more attention to you know little niggles and and pains you know and and things like that um really I got to stay on top of of mobility and and movement prep and you know paying attention to to those kind of things especially the hips you know um just to make sure that because I don't have a lot of space there that hip flexors and things like that don't start closing and tightening and making that even tighter you know um I've noticed that my pain thresholds a little bit higher you know I consider myself kind of a wimp. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I, have I've been in pain and and trained through it for, you know, a lot of times, you know, um, just because I'm used to it. It's always Mm. been there for years and years and years. I mean, even when I was in high school, you know, um, so I gotta be kind of aware of that because sometimes I got to make sure that I don't just keep training through it, thinking to myself, well, this is just normal. Well, maybe it won't be, Mm. you know? Um, so I guess those are the big things and maybe that's kind of surprising, you know, there's some people that, you know, I don't, it doesn't affect me more. Yeah.
0: So. I think well, definitely, that's a massive misconception in the fitness community. And I guess, um, the broader community is that if you have back injuries or, you know, abnormalities that you immediately can't lift weights and that you can't squat bench deadlift because, you know, their compound movements, compressive loads, and, you know, that's bad for the back. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess you're a great example of, you know, how it doesn't really uh, affect training provided you do all the, you know, fine-tuning and mobility work around it.
1: Yeah, yeah, in fact, really quite the opposite, you know, Jacob. It's it's probably actually really been beneficial, you know, to Mm. my abnormality. Um just because of all the, the 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 core strength is there. And I'm not talking about the abs. Yeah. You know, I'm talking yeah. about the true core muscles, the pelvic floor muscles and the, the psoas muscles and, and yeah. those muscles inside. Because when you're doing those lifts, a lot of that people don't realize is being utilized and you're mm. bracing, you know, and, and maintaining your posture. Um a while back I had to have a, a CAT scan done of my abdomen because I have a little hernia right here. Yeah. Um, little incisional hernia, you know, and they just wanted to get a look at it and make sure that it it wasn't progressing and getting worse. And the radiologist said, God dang, he says, your psoas muscles are the biggest I have ever seen. I have never seen such thick, huge psoas muscles. It says that they take up like, you know, a a third of your Mm. abdominal cavity. And I'm sure it's just from the the lifting that we do, you know, and, and the valsalva and the bracing and You know, all of that kind of stuff that goes along with squatting and deadlifting, you know, that that does that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, And with your powerlifting, obviously that's something that you've really started to get into um, of late. You came second at nationals last year. Uh, Two years ago. Two years ago, sorry. Um, And what were your totals then for the squat, bench, dead?
1: Um, my, My... In that... I, I kind of float between two weight categories. I kind of float between uh, the 74 kg and the 83 kg yep. category. Um, so two years ago, I did the 74 kg category. Um, my Wilkes was 409. Um, I don't remember what my total was, but it was it was 12-something. Yeah. Um, but my lifts were... Um, my squat was... Let me think. It was 424 in pounds. So I think that's... Two ninety-two, I think. That is that no one ninety-two, one ninety-two yep. and a half, I think, yep. in in kilos. My bench was two ninety-six, so I think that's one thirty-five. Um, and then my deadlift was five thirty-five, so I think that's to
0: to two thirty-five. I can't remember what that
1: is. Something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. that sounds about right because yeah, I did two fifty this year. So yeah. That was my total then, and, and just for clarification, I got second in the masters category, yep. so I got the silver cat, the silver medal in masters one. So that's yep. the forty to forty-four division. Yep. Um, and so yeah, those were my lifts then. Now last year I competed in the eighty-three kg, and that was a, a two-fifty um, deadlift, which is five fifty-one, I believe, in pounds. Yeah. Um, sorry, my I just woke up here, so my brain's not <laughs> my arithmetic's not working very good. Um, my Wilkes wasn't as high. I think my Wilkes was a three ninety seven or something like that. Just just under a four hundred. Um my squat was a four forty six. I think that was two oh two, if I remember right. Two oh two and a half. And then my, my bench was a mess. My bench was I think I think I got the same thing a one thirty-five.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's still a pretty solid bench press. And Aside from time under the bar, you know, so practicing the skill of powerlifting, um, if there could be any one thing that you could emphasize to powerlifters wanting to get better at the sport, what would that be? Oh,
1: wow, good question. Um, yeah, really good question because you know the, the fun thing about powerlifting is is improvement is kind of dependent upon a couple of things. Hmm. In my opinion, yeah. um, obviously, number one is, is technique. You know, a lot of times the best power lifters, you know, they're not necessarily the, the strongest guys. They just they're, they're really good at their execution, you know, yeah. um, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just natural to them, you know. Um, maybe it's just the way they were built you know they've got the right attachments and the right you know angle of joints and things like that but like you know things like keeping the bar path straight on your squat you know so that it's a nice straight movement and there's not a lot of you know movement Um, you know and that's a lot of times just cues in the hips and things like that but then the the other side of that is good programming you know Mm -hmm. and it kind of you always have to take into consideration the age of the client you know Uh, if they're young, you can be more aggressive and you can kind of program in a more linear fashion where sometimes loads and reps are going up at the same time. You know, whereas, you know, somebody like myself has been in the gym 20 years. I can't do that. You know, I'll progress for two weeks and then I'm done, you know? (laughs) So then you have to periodize more and you have to go through kind of more ebbs and flows. So gosh, you know, that is an excellent question. I don't really know. If there would be one thing that I, I could offer somebody except for do the movements, mm. you know. I mean, obviously if you're injured, like right now I've got this kind of niggle in my lat right here, so I can't really deadlift much more than about once every four week block. You know, so we've had to be creative and and replace that with a similar lift that I can yeah. do. But if you're not injured, do the lifts, you know. Because you're going to get better just through the execution of it, you know, and, and just learn as much as you can about the lifts. You know, be be very open-minded, um, you know, and, and, and do your homework, I guess, in, in being able to get better. And, you know, I've, you've probably experienced the same thing. I've had this kind of ebb and flow, increase and decrease in my lifts because, you know, you just you, you go through a spurt. You, you, you get better at it, better at it, better at it. Then when you kind of reach your ceiling, it kind of falls off a little bit. Then you learn a new cue, you know, yeah. opening up your hips on a sumo deadlift, you know, um, staying on your heels on a squat, whatever, you know. Then you get this spurt again. Yeah. Then you kind of generate new muscular strength and then it you kind of continue, and then it kinda of plateaus and then it falls yeah. off and then you know, you gotta change up your programming or then you get a new cue and then it picks up again. So you just gotta keep doing the lifts, I think is mm-hmm. What I'm getting at would be the obvious, you know, take home there.
0: And just on that, so obviously, you know, practice and doing the lifts is key for powerlifters because it is a skill. The longer you practice the skill, the better you get at expressing your strength through that skill. Um, Mm -hmm. But from what I've seen and I've experienced as a powerlifter and a coach of powerlifters is that the longevity of a powerlifter's career is not that that great a time? It's very short because people lose interest um, because it's only three movements. It can get quite boring. I think it takes a specific personality type, um, mm-hmm. you know, to really just love three movements, um, as well as injuries, um, you know, and other lifestyle factors. Um, do you do anything in particular to keep yourself and your powerlifting athletes fresh so that they don't burn out and lose interest in the sport is what I'm getting at.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that's another good question. Um, Well, you're you're firing intriguing, thought-provoking questions at me, Um, Yeah, you know, I I, I think that we're kind of lucky in that we tend to draw people, you know, we, we tend to draw athletes that are a similar mindset to us, you know, um, you know, there's a reason why one of the D's in 3d muscle journey is dedication. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of an innate trait, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that it's, I'm a dedicated guy in, in, no matter what it is that I do, you know, um, when I was a, when I raced stock hearts, you know, I was a dedicated guy. That was what, that was my thing. That was what I did. And I did that for years and years and years, you know, Um, being a dad, you know, I'm a dedicated dad, you know, that's my thing, you know, and, and I don't almost everything I do, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. with a lot of passion. I really try hard and, and I think we draw people that are, are, are like that. Yeah. And so I think it's just kind of an intuitive thing that, that those people that come to us, we don't have to work as hard to keep them enthused and passionate, you know, um, but you know that the nice thing too is that, I mean, there are those, there, there's that not, not everybody's that way, yeah. you know, and there are those that lose interest. And so we have a kind of a nice Avenue in that we, we coach power lifters and bodybuilders. And so we can kind of program things to kind of incorporate yeah. both, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so we can kind of keep them enthused that way. And a lot of times, I mean, folks that, that do lose interest in, in power lifting, you know, maybe they'll, they'll shift to bodybuilding. You know, maybe sometimes they'll, they'll keep lifting, but maybe they'll shift to Olympic lifting or, you know, like is doing like grid, you know, or something Mm. like that. Um, and so obviously, you know, we're not going to be able to coach them in that capacity because we don't have the the knowledge base for that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least they stay in in lifting, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they, and they keep doing, you know, I mean, there's a reason why we love doing this, you know, and, and whatever that reason is, they're probably going to stick to it in some capacity, you know? Um, but yeah, I think probably just incorporating not only the skills of of the squat bench and the deadlifting, but then also you know, other disciplines, bodybuilding disciplines. You know, maybe you know, who knows, maybe we do do barbell complexes for their cardio or something like that to keep it interesting, yeah, but still keep the goal the goal, you know, and say, okay here's here's what, here's our goal here is to improve these lifts or drop body fat for bodybuilding or whatever but we're going to supplement that with yeah. with interesting things that that work we're going to expend calories through barbell complexes for cardio you know we're going to do arm specialization cycles for bodybuilding yeah. to keep them through you know and keep them interested well so i hope that
0: answers the question no yeah, well, definitely.
1: That, was, yeah. that was a good one
0: <laughs> <laughs> um So obviously with powerlifting, uh, training frequency is very important uh, in terms of how you structure and organize a program, um, because that will obviously determine where you put your volume and intensity and how many times a week you practice the movements. Um, How does training frequency for powerlifting, you spoke of dual athletes who do bodybuilding and powerlifting, how would the training frequency differ from palaces and bodybuilders?
1: Oh, good question. That's that we're talking programming now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, again, you know, you have to really know your athlete. Um, you got to know what their training age is. You got to know, you know, what their, uh, kind of level of skill is, you know, you got to kind of know what they can and they can't do, you know, what they're good at, what they respond to, you know, that's a lot. Knowing your athlete is going to dictate 70% of that, 75% of that. Um, so, yeah, you know, a new athlete, you know, maybe we can get away with just, you know, programming things once a week, you know, um, if they're a bodybuilder, maybe we have them squat once a week. And then the rest of the time, you know, we have them leg press and, you know, do other, um, I guess, less technical movements,
0: mm-hmm. And why... Uh, for, wh- for bodybuilding. So, on that, why do you want bodybuilders to perform less technical movements um, as opposed to a powerlifter if they're trying to hypertrophy your muscle? Um,
1: You know, I think probably bodybuilders just sometimes are not... Uh, they're not as good as the lifts, you know. Yeah. Um, they, a lot of times I've seen bodybuilders that want to, you know, get into a strength sport and they can't deadlift, you know, or they... The deadlifting they're doing is atrocious, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, sometimes you got to break them into it, you know, and, and kind of start them, kind of, you know, um, subtly, I guess you might say, doing a once-a-week frequency. Um, but the nice thing is with bodybuilders, they don't have to deadlift, you yeah. know. If their if their focus is bodybuilding, you know, we can we can program other things for back development, you know, and glute development. And hamstring development and things like that. Um, And then, you know, getting back to your original question, sometimes you just got to take into consideration the athlete. You know, Mm. an athlete that's got a a great back and is just blessed symmetrically with a good V taper and good lats, you know, maybe we only have to train their back, you know, twice a week. Whereas if they're a little bit deficient in their chest and their pecs, maybe we got to program, you know, that kind of stuff three times a week, four times a week, you know. Um. So yeah, boy, I could go on and on and on about that, yeah. about the differences in the athletes, and you know, asymmetrical differences, and weak points and strong points, and sometimes weak points are not weak points necessarily. It's you know just kind of the way that their body is kind of put together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um So yeah, yeah, I I could go on and on and on about that. Um, with powerlifters, you know, sometimes you can only get away with doing the minimum that they can do to progress, you know, like with me right now, I, I have to deadlift once every four week training block. It's not that that's optimal. It's just, that's what I can get away with, you know, or what I I can't do without making, making my injury worse. Yeah. I can bench four or five times a week, you know, and, and sometimes that's what it takes to progress. You know, right Right now, Eric is, I don't know if you guys talked about this in your podcast with him, but he's benching five times a week right now. Mm. Um, you know that's that's been working for him. You know, so a lot of times you got to find out what works for the athlete, what they get, what they can and they can't yeah, do, and sure. sometimes you got to do that minimum threshold. You know, so I don't know if I necessarily
0: answered that question. No, <laughs> no, you did, you did. <laughs> at
1: least, at least it sounded like I did. <laughs>
0: you did in a roundabout way. Um, so you mentioned how with bodybuilders, and obviously you work with your clients online. With bodybuilders, you program less technical movements. Is that because you can't coach them face-to-face and cue them into the right you know, movement patterns and teach the skill? Is that why you program machines to get the same, I guess, stimulus on a particular muscle because it's easier?
1: Yeah. I mean, not, not necessarily. Yep. You know, um, with, with bodybuilding, it's kind of uh, – you almost kind of want to pick on, on, on individual muscles, you know, a lot, you know? And so you always build the foundation, obviously, you know, you have your compound movements, your pull downs and your overhead presses and your rows and things like that. But, you know, um, just the term bodybuilding, if you think about that, you're, you're, you're trying to, to build kind of a specific area, yeah. I guess you might say. So I think it's just kind of the nature of the sport. Once you get your, your, almost minimum amount of compounds there you do a lot of machines and dumbbell work and isolation work pick on those those individual body parts you usually do you know a fair amount of repetitions you know 8 15 we usually don't program much more than about 15 yeah um but when you're trying to just kind of isolate and work one muscle that's obviously the most advantageous way to do that you know um so i think that's probably the biggest reason that we kind of program that for for bodybuilders you know as opposed to power lifters and i mean let's face it when you're not squatting and benching three four five times a week um you can put a lot of machine slash isolation work in their leg extensions leg curls you know bicep curls tricep you can do a lot of that because there's not a lot of trauma in Squatting once a week, leg pressing once a week. You know, what I mean, you yeah. got those foundational movements there. Then you just hit them with leg extensions and leg curls and yeah. you know, innies and outies and and lunges and split squats. You know, and things like that. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably you know why we do that a lot with 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 our bodybuilders, is just because that's kind of the nature of the sport. You're yeah, sure. Attacking everything, and then you're like hitting that muscle, and you're hitting that muscle, and then you're hitting that muscle. You know. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you don't train those really with a lot of intensity and a lot of load, yeah. you know what I mean? You just, you, you pump and squeeze and you get three sets of 15 here and, and the last set is maybe a little bit tough, you know. yeah, yeah. Uh, or four sets of 12 on that one and maybe the first three are pretty easy, you know, yeah. and the last one was maybe a little bit tough. But I think it's just this is kind of the nature of the sport almost in a way. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah, touching on that, you mentioned – that volume is obviously extremely important, hence the intensity for bodybuilders can't be too high. Um, do you want to explain to the listeners why um, having too great an intensity on the on the bar can be counterintuitive to muscle growth?
1: Um, well, when you're talking about power lifters, you know, especially an advanced power lifter, um, they can't train with 90, 95, 100% of 1RM of all the time, you know. Um, they, they can only do that once a, a mesocycle, you know, sometimes once a macro cycle.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's, it's simply because you can't progress, you know. It's it's kind of like hitting a wall in a way, yeah. you know. You've got to train sub you got to train in 75, 80%, work your way up, peak, you know, even then you might not hit 90, 95% that you might just hit that range deload drop fatigue off start it over again maybe yeah. the next cycle yeah. you know so you, i think that's kind of with the power lift. now with bodybuilders and and you've probably felt this if you're training with real heavy loads on those isolation movements man the joints just they take a pounding you know yeah um, i i've i've gone through real heavy cycles of bicep curls And my biceps and my forearms and my elbows would get so beat up that I won't be able to curl for like three months. You know, Uh, I was fighting an elbow injury early on in my career that was like a year and a half. I needed help kicking a dumbbell up into my pressing position, you know, because this was so torn up. So, you know, is that very advantageous to to train with a, a lot of load and a lot of, you know, intensity? To the point of breaking and then I can't even do that movement for eight months, a year, year and a half. You know what I mean? You got to be smart about it. You got to be, you know, those, those, those joints and those tendons can only take so much of a pounding. And then you you, you can't even do that movement anymore. So you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're training in a way that, you know, maybe yet, maybe it's submaximal. Maybe some might consider it suboptimal. But for longevity and being able to keep doing that movement, which is we've learned with natural bodybuilding, you know, and natural strength sports, you got to do it. You mm. got to do it consistently, and that's really the most advantageous thing you can do, as opposed to training heavy, you Getting know, this portion yeah. and in etc. etc. You yeah. know. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I've learned is that do the movement a lot. You know, and in, in kind of almost have an approach of of working a range that works to where you're not going to the point of breaking, but at the same point, not making it lackably easy. Yeah. you know what I mean. There's a fine line yeah. that's right there in between that you want to live.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah, awesome and really good points. You briefly touched on how longevity and doing the lifts consistently and getting volume in over time is. Extremely important for bodybuilders. Um, in a practical sense, how do you measure your athletes and your own training volume? You know, I've heard Eric speak of um, measuring, you know, hard sets per workout um, and so forth. But is there any particular way that you measure training volume to ensure that over time it's increasing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a numbers geek. You know, yeah. I, I I love analyzing data. I love spreadsheets and punching in formulas. So, you know, kind of my go-to is let's calculate tonnage here. You know, especially if you can keep a consistent movement. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, I calculate tonnage. You know, take that load and multiply it by by the repetitions, the total repetitions. You know, and yeah. then just watch that number. You know, kind of over
0: time. So do that's you,
1: that's kind of my go-to.
0: Yeah. And do you do that only for say the squat, or do you do it for all? You know, quad dominant movements, hip dominant movements, as in uh, calculating the total tonnage for a particular muscle group, or is it a particular movement that you're watching specifically? Both, both. You
1: know, I like to watch all of the above, kind of, so to speak. So I can kind of like, I can kind of cherry pick and I can say, okay, let's look at squat volume over time. You know what I mean? Um, Or squat tonnage, I guess I have to say, over time. And then I can put things together and say, okay, let's look at squat, leg press, leg extension, put that all together and say, okay, that's kind of volume over time for for quadriceps, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's a lot of times, you know, we're not working with athletes for years and years and years. Yeah, we're sure. lucky, you know, if we do, um, you know, so we can't necessarily look at last year's tonnage compared to this year's tonnage, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but we can at least look at training blocks, you know, and a lot of times with, especially with our bodybuilders, which, you know, we, we, that's about 70% of what we do. We can say, okay, look, this is kind of where we started, you know, and here we are now 12, 20, you know, 24 weeks later, it's a little bit higher, you know, a couple, couple thousand pounds here, you know, et cetera. So obviously there's progression there. Plus body weight's gone down, you know? So the body weight's gone down, Wilk score has gone up, you know, and yep. obviously it's not, there's not a Wilk score in leg extensions, but nonetheless, <laughs> there's kind of a double progression there. So not yep. only is the tonnage a little bit higher, but then now body weight's down. So we progressed in that fashion, you know? So I really like kind of watching those numbers because a lot of times when we start our athletes, we'll start with a little bit of a drop in volume,
0: mm.
1: progress beyond kind of where they started. Yep. And then when they're super lean and they're fragile, you know, sometimes the volume will drop a little bit again, but at least now they're it's kind of back to, yeah. to where it was yeah. when they first started, but they're 20 pounds lighter,
0: yeah. you know? Okay.
1: Um, and so that's kind of why I like watching those numbers over time and just kind of see what happens, at least during a short period of time of 20, 24 weeks, you know? Yeah. And then say that, say the, the times does just kind of drop off a little bit right toward the end, right after the recovery diet, we can get that right back up again. They're still lighter, yeah. you know? So now there's still some progress as far as that goes. We can start again. Mm. And then they can take the reins after that and they can start making sure that you know, maybe the next prep they're up a little bit higher. Yeah. you know. Um, but at the same time, I try not to let numbers rule me in a way. You yep. know what I mean? Because there's a lot of volume that we can't quantify through numbers. I've got one athlete that our numbers are way, way down compared to when he started his original prep. But when he started his prep, his range of motion was not very good.
0: Yeah, okay. And
1: so if we think about a squat, you know, that's this much deeper on every single repetition, you know, yeah. there's some unquantifiable volume that's happening there. That yeah. that set is now taking longer. Each repetition is going,
0: Yeah. the sure. stroke,
1: the overall stroke is a lot more, you yeah. know, and it's the set is taking longer. There's volume right there that, that we've yeah. picked up, you know. So a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about these magic bodybuilding, you know, intensity practices of drop sets and and burnouts and forced repetitions and, you know, pause sets and things like that. There's nothing fancy about that. We're just taking a set that lasted this long and we're making it last this long. This is all unquantifiable volume that we've picked up. That's the magic there. We're just picking up volume is all we're doing.
0: And on that, do you use uh, intensification methods like drop sets, pause sets, supersets, giant sets? Do you use those with your bodybuilding athletes or do you typically keep it to a single set?
1: Yeah, I, I don't use
0: those very often. Yeah. You know, really,
1: Jacob, to be honest with you, gosh, when was the last time that I even used that? Um,
0: and if not, why?
1: you know, you just can't calculate the volume. There's, there's no way to to calculate the volume that's happening there. You know, it's, it's, it's a shot in the dark, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times those intensity techniques, they really can take a toll and almost put you in a hole that you can't get out of. You know what I mean? People that can't progress, people love intensity techniques on the bench press, you know? Um, And so if they tear up a a muscle on a a forced rep set or, you know, a a drop set or a giant set or something like that, there's a lot of trauma that's been incurred there. And sometimes that can take weeks to recover from. Well, we're impatient people. You know, here it is three weeks later, you know, we're doing a a bench press workout, for example, that was maybe three or four sessions after that when we can't understand why we can't progress or why we're actually weaker. You've probably generated so much fatigue and so much trauma there that you still haven't recovered from it. Yep. You know? So there's a reason right there why you're you can't progress. And so that I I don't use those very often. Yep. You know, I don't think I ever really use those. And when I do use those, it's kind of in a smart way to where we can save time. Yeah. We've got to get our work done. You're a dad. I'm a dad. You know, we've got jobs, we've got businesses. So it doesn't bother me if an athlete kind of supersets like their calves and their pull ups. Yeah. You know what I mean? They do their set of pull ups, they go over, they do their calves, they get a drink of water, they go do another set of pull ups. That kind of stuff doesn't bother me because it's not incurring a lot of trauma and it's not taking away and masking our volume. You yeah. know? Yeah. They're just they're just squeezing things together so that the
0: training session is shorter yet they're still meeting the the volume that we yeah. want. Awesome. Now that answers that perfectly so we know that what gets measured gets managed and that's why calculating total tonnage is extremely important from a training perspective on the flip side when you guys are measuring body composition what are some of the objective and subjective measures that you guys use to ensure that somebody is losing body fat gaining length muscle can you elaborate on that
1: yeah, yeah, it's very um, intuitive. I you know. I guess you might say. I mean, I really don't pay much attention to you know like body fat analysis and, and, and things like that because yep. it can be very misleading and, and really a lot of times you know, Jacob, it, it can almost be damaging to the, the athlete's psyche. You yeah, know, it's like, sure. why isn't body fat going down? You know, yeah. and, and let's face it. I mean, sometimes technically, you know, sitz DEXA. You know, I've done DEXA before, and if you don't get the person exactly in the same spot that they were before, it, it can skew the results a little bit, you know. Yeah, um, And I just don't, I don't want that kind of a, of a, a numbers game to, to play with my athlete, you know. So ours is very intuitive, it's visual, yeah. you know. A great example is right now I've got an athlete who, over the last six weeks, has really not lost any weight on the scale, you know, per se. And that could be somewhat demoralizing, you know, and it could be very misleading for the coach. But we keep an eye on these athletes. These are physique athletes. We got to see them, you know, they got to submit physique photos. Yeah. This athlete has gotten noticeably narrow, you know. Um, and, and we're talking some some pretty significant, you know, amounts of body fat in areas. And yeah. those areas have been diminished
0: a lot. Has, has so we his, think about. Sorry, sorry, Brad. Has his training volume gone up? as he's
1: yes yep. yes which okay. is exactly kind of my next point is yep. because like i told you you've got to know your athlete you got to know where they've come from yep. okay so this athlete it, they're a trainer they they've been work they've been working in, in the gym training clients and so you know they do their their training but you know they're busy their training kind of fell off they weren't training to any specific yeah. progression they were just kind of going through the motions so, comparatively speaking, from that point there to now, where we're training through a progression scheme, there's consistent training happening. Yeah. They're not that experienced in the gym. You know, they're only probably four, six, eight years, you know, in the gym. Yeah. Um, and since they haven't done really, you know, uh, proper progression over time, they're kind of almost a beginner yeah. in a way, even though yeah. they've been there for a while. So there's obviously some body composition changes, you know, yeah. or what they call, what do they call that? Body recomp, I yeah. think they say body recomposition. Um, that's that's obviously happened here because, yeah, there, there was this dip in the scale right off the bat, but now it's just kind of flat. How can their scale weight not change, but yet they're, they're losing body fat? Yeah. We can, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where I got to ask the athlete, am I seeing what is real here? Talk to your friends, you know, talk yeah. to your family. Are you truly getting narrower, you know? And yeah. then pretty soon out of the blue, they send me pictures side by side of when they started, when they're now. It's like, wow. Yeah. There's definitely some body yeah. recomposition that's happening there. There's definitely a, a drop in body fat, a gain in muscle because they are training smarter again. Yeah. But that change on the scale is going to be zero, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's um,
1: that's the way we do it a lot, it's visually.
0: Visually. Yeah. And
1: they're bodybuilders, you know. Judges don't care what their body fat is. You know, yeah. they care what they look like. And so that's what we've gotta kinda of do is we've gotta look at the, the body composition changes visually.
0: Yeah, that's um a perfect point. So you guys use progress pictures and the scales, correct? Are they the two measures mm-hmm. that you use for yep. body fat? Yeah.
1: Yep, in conjunction with each other. In conjunction with each other. Females love measurements um which is fine you know that doesn't really bother me a whole lot but again in a body recomposition type of a thing it's like well why are my thighs getting bigger yeah you know and it's like well they're getting bigger because look at the splits that you got there now you know yeah we've got a a flat muscle that's now pushing its way you know through these body fat levels you know that are making them you know, For either sure. grow yeah. a little bit or maybe they're not, even though they look smaller, you know, maybe they're they're not actually getting smaller in, in diameter through measurements, you know. Yeah. So we always got to, it's always a balancing game. We got to look at the numbers on the scale. We got to look at what's happening visually. And then, you know, we got to kind of take that all into consideration. And, and a lot of times it's just a matter of, you know, kind of rationalizing things and explaining them to the clients so that they don't freak out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: a hundred percent and now that we're touching on bodybuilding um obviously when you start with an athlete whether it's in the off season or at the beginning of a prep how do you calculate their maintenance calorie intake do you guys use a specific formula that eric has devised do you go off their you know calories of the have been eating for the previous week what's your approach there
1: Good question. I have a go-to that I go to and it's, it's, it's what I do with 90% of my athletes. Yep. Um, and, and we're, we're all different and I love to customize things to the person. Um, and so I almost insist on, on, on pre what I call pre-start data, you know? And so if it's, if it's a, a person that's never really done flexible dieting or anything, I will have them simply track their food and log it in our yeah. log for three weeks. I prefer so more three better. Weeks. I prefer three yeah. weeks, four weeks, five weeks, but I can usually figure things out for two weeks, yeah, you know, with, with two weeks of data. And then again, being that I'm the numbers geek, I love getting their spreadsheet. I just I, I average it all out. So if I've got three weeks of data, I just average out what is their average fat intake, what is their average carbohydrate intake, what is their average protein intake. Okay. Yeah. Average that out, we get an average or at least a mean average of daily calories, right? We multiply that by seven for seven days in a week and we get a weekly caloric intake, right? And so then I compare that to what is their changes in weight over that period of time, okay? Okay. Um, So in a perfect world, average that all out, taking in 21,000 calories a week, Body weights remain unchanged. One seventy nine, you know, point one, one seventy nine point eight, one seventy eight point nine, they're hundred and seventy nine pounds, right? That twenty one thousand calories a week is their maintenance. Yeah. And, right? there you go from there. and it's kind of it's almost kind of like indisputable in a way. That's yeah. why I love the numbers sometimes, is that you can't argue them, you know? Yeah. Um, and so then if it's a bodybuilder, I'm saying, okay, I want to lose Three quarters of a pound a week, okay. 0. .66. So, what is that in grams? I guess we're looking at uh, uh, what four hundred fifty grams is about a pound. So that would be like maybe what 250, 300 grams? Is that yeah. right? Is my arithmetic yeah. working there? Yeah,
0: math is <laughs> so a lot strong point, but it sounds about right.
1: If we kind of quantify a pound of weight, you know, as three thousand five hundred calories. If 21,000 calories a week is this person's maintenance, I want them now to take in 2,700 less. So yeah. I want them now to take in, what would that be, 19,000, uh, or no, 18,300, yeah. okay? okay? And then I just take that and I divvy it up however I want. If I want to use a diet periodization of high and low days, I'll just program yeah. certain days at this, this level, certain days at this level. And then as long as the weekly total equals roughly 18,500, 18,300 a week, they're going to drop three quarters of a pound over time. Sometimes it goes, you know, two pounds in the first two weeks, then it levels off and there's maybe no loss for a week. But then when you take all of that and divide it up by the number of weeks that there, it's usually right, you know, 0.66. That's kind of what we program. So that's my go-to. Yep. I love awesome. analyzing something and then customizing it to the person. You know, um, On the flip side, say that over that three or four weeks that I've analyzed it, we say 21,000 calories a week is, is what they're taking in. And they've lost a half a pound a week on average, right? Well, they're in a deficit. Yep. If they're taking 21,000 calories a week and they're dropping weight, they're in a deficit. They're already eating a deficit. So then – Again, 3,500 calories being a pound, we can add that back in, they've dropped a half a pound, you're looking at 1,700 calories or so a week that is their deficit, add that in, their maintenance is not 21,000, it's what, 22,700, right? So then I can either increase that deficit however much I want, or if I don't want them losing weight during a period of time, I'll say, okay, now we're going to raise your level of food. The twenty-two thousand seven hundred a week, or whatever it is that we want to do, so that's my go-to, yeah, and that's, that's what I do ninety percent of the time. The other ten percent, people don't have the discipline to track their food, yeah. or they don't know how to, or it's like the data you've given me is just garbage. You know, yeah, it's, that was that was my next what, question. You, what, yeah, what you've given me here in numbers is not what you're truly yeah. eating.
0: <laughs> so that was but
1: then we got to you know we yeah. got to use eric's method that he goes over in the pyramid books yeah I mean, we got to kind of start taking their their body weight times uh a, uh a, a, you know a, a kind of a metabolic factor of 1.5 or you know whatever or something like that and then we got to start kind of using those tools
0: yeah so that's um that was my next question was do you find that when you get people to start tracking their food intake that they inherently change their diet because they're making, you know, the data available to you, and Mm -hmm. do you find that, you know, that first three or four weeks, there is a lot of misreporting, because obviously tracking macros and calories is quite a, you know, large learning curve, and a lot of Mm -hmm. people don't have the skill to do it properly from the onset?
1: Yeah, sometimes it can be tricky, because sometimes I'll even tell people, look, I don't want you to be good. Yeah. I want you just tracking your food. I want you eating like you normally do, but put it in the app and put it on this log that I yeah. give you. You know, and and even if I tell them to be good, you know what they do? They just be good. You know, yeah. for whatever reason, they they don't want me to be judgmental of the yes. food that they eat or yeah. that they're taking in a hundred and you know eighty grams of fat every day. <laughs> so they just inherently be good. But as long as the data is accurate, as long as what they put down in numbers is truly what they're sticking in their mouth. Yeah. I can still figure it out, yeah. you know what I mean? Because I can compare the numbers to what is happening to their body weight over time. What I really hate is when I don't have data, when I don't have anything, you know, that really just, oh, it just, it, it, it stresses me out, you yeah. know, because then I've got nothing. I can't even figure anything out, you know. Um, so I'd rather have a number than, yeah. than no number, you know what I mean? And, I mean, yeah, it's happened before, you know, Jacob, to be honest with you. They've given me the data. I've taken it for for face value. Um, Got started on a bodybuilding prep. They're not losing weight, you know. Sometimes three weeks, sometimes four weeks, sometimes five weeks. Now, we're not just going to randomly start changing things after a couple, two, three weeks. But after six, seven weeks, we got to start thinking something's not
0: right here, you know. And how do you so tackle we, those compliance issues?
1: Good question. You know, sometimes, I mean, let's face it. If we, we, we can make the, the best plan, if the athlete can't execute it, it's, it's not going to work, you know. But it's, it's sometimes a tricky thing, you know. Sometimes we just got to say, okay, I need you to make a menu, you know. We need to follow a menu during a period of time. Here. Yeah. Obviously, that's not the best way to go about things, and that does a lot of times kind of uh, – you know, lead to eating disorders and things like that, but sometimes you got to do that. And sometimes that alone will reveal whatever, you know, inaccuracies are happening. You know, I had an athlete one time that was, was weighing his food. It was, he was accurate, you know, with his, with his weighing of his food and everything was to the gram. But what he would do is he would take the amount of, of grams of carbohydrate that are in that food and then. Weigh that food out by the gram. So if something had 28 grams of carbohydrate in it, he would eat 28 grams of that food.
0: Oh my! Goodness. To him, it made
1: perfect sense. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, it was it was accurate. Yeah. But he was tremendously under eating. Yeah. You know. Sheesh. Um. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes it's they, they're, they're very accurate in their measurement, but it's just the way that they're thinking of it or the way that it is in their mind. Uh, is is incorrect yeah. in, in what is truly the, the amount of, of food that they should be eating, you know. And so sometimes, yeah, sometimes we have to make a menu to fix things like that, you know. Okay. Other times, it's just a matter of, you know, and it depends on the athlete, you know. We can't, With you, I, I feel pretty confident that I could get a hold of your shirt, get you in the face and say, you need to get your stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> and that would be enough to be like, whoa, yeah. you know. Brad's serious here I need to get my stuff together you know <laughs> otherwise you just got to say you know I I'm, I'm really questioning how accurate you're being you know yeah. and then it's like well you know you're right I'm not quantifying my coffee creamer you know yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not adding in you know the, the the little nibbles of the the raisins and, and things like that The blot slicks and tastes. Uh-huh. exactly yeah. yeah yeah and so it, it's a it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing yeah. you know because some people might get offended, you know, they yeah. might say, well, of course I'm accurate. Why are you questioning me? You yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. So you got to really, really be careful how you approach that.
0: And just on that, so obviously you said that you use meal plans sometimes when your clients are having adherence and compliance issues and tracking calories and macros and a flexible approach to dieting is obviously far better than a rigid approach um, for you know, obvious reasons but does there come a point like you mentioned where you just simply say to your athletes we need to get you on stage you obviously you know can't comprehend what you need to do in terms of tracking your calories and macros let's just follow a meal plan let's just you know default to what's gonna work
1: and very sparingly it does happen though yeah you know but just yeah very sparingly I mean even,
0: or do you pull the pin on the competition and say we need to get this right and reset? Oh. You know. Yeah, yeah good us. question.
1: Good question. And it, and it just depends on how um you know, how how what the desire is of the of the the athlete, you know. Obviously, if they're like I am getting on stage and come hell or high water, I'm going to be in the, the the proper condition, you yeah. know. Then yeah, then we say okay, we're going to have to resort to a menu here. Yeah. You know, and, and because we're not, you know, dietitians and we can't prescribe foods, you know, we, we have them make the menu. Yeah. Uh, we go we go through it, make sure that it's all accurate, you know, and we say, OK, if, if you're if, if you're up for this, you know, it sounds like you're you're, you know, really steadfast in your, your desire to do this. Here's what we got to do, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, sometimes. People won't even adhere to a menu, you know, and it's just because. It's hard. I mean, let's face it. When we sign up for this, people a lot of times they love the look of the physique athlete. They love the abs. They love the striations. Yeah. But the work that goes into that is sometimes it's it's not. It's just not doable for the athlete at that particular yeah. period of time because it is so hard. Um, and so yeah, a lot of times we do got to say, okay, look, we need to we need to pull the plug here. You know, either a we need to pull the plug because you're not going to achieve the condition that you're go- that you want with the execution that you've been yeah. exhibiting here. You know, um, you know, or B, we just got to be happy with what we get. We just got to say, okay, look, we got to be happy with knowing that you're not going to get that condition this time around. Yeah. You know, we just got to get on stage, be happy with what we can get, and so sometimes to try sometimes it's beat you know yep. it just depends on the athlete really we just got to have that heart to heart talking and let them decide because they're the boss so
0: yeah that's um yeah that's pretty interesting and it's great information for coaches to know that if it fits your macros is only one nutritional approach there are so many other ways to skin the proverbial cat sure. yeah so one of the questions I wanted to ask you in regards to training during a contest prep Obviously as we get lighter and we lose body mass, hopefully body fat, we obviously lose a little bit of muscle tissue. We inherently get a little bit weaker, recovery becomes an issue um, due to you know energy restriction and so forth. So how do you manage total tonnage and volume during a contest prep? And do you change from prescribing loads to using RPEs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, yeah.
1: It almost comes, I would say 90% of the time it's inevitable that we're just going to have to auto-regulate things a little bit, you know, and just kind of know that, yeah, volume down right now, but I mean, you're fragile, you know, this is an isolated period of time. We're talking about five, six weeks here in the course of your 20 year lifting career where volume is down a little bit, you know? And so, yeah, 90% of the time we have to auto-regulate, you know, and it's, a lot of times with the way that, that that we prescribe things where we give kind of rep targets, it's easy to do that. We can say, okay, we're abandoning progression here. No longer are we going to, you know, decrease reps and increase load and then increase reps and decrease load. We've got rep targets in place. I just want you to use a load that you feel is appropriate and I don't really even care what that load is. Yeah. You know. Obviously we don't want to make it so easy that you can just walk through your training session, but at the same time, if you can't hit a rep target of, of you know, four sets of, of five with a load that's a pound, two pounds heavier than last week, our rep target is four sets of five. You use, you use a load that feels appropriate to get those four sets of five in, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that happens 90% of the time. And you know what? You know, a lot of times, because I do have my spreadsheets actually calculate the tonnage, really a lot of times it's not that far off, yeah, you know. Okay. You look at, like, maybe their peak of where their tonnage was the highest and maybe we're down maybe 1500 pounds on a particular movement.
0: Okay.
1: But sometimes that is equal to where they started or sometimes it's just barely above or just barely below where they started, you know? Yeah. Um, and then 10% of the time you've just got that athlete that can just recover from what seems like anything Yeah. and you can just follow the progression plan right up to their competition yeah. prep, you know, or up right up to their competition. It's rare that that happens, but it is—it does happen on occasion, and that's yeah. always a, a very kind of a blessed place to be.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, when you prescribe, for example, four sets of five, um, you spoke about how, in the large, you know, grand scheme of things, training volume's only down for a really short period of time. And similarly, in our training, people get really hell bent on hitting specific sets of a no- desired number of reps as opposed to looking at the total number of reps that they've got to hit. Do you ever say, hey, I just need you to hit twenty reps? Four mm-hmm. sets of five, whether you get five, four, four, three, and then an extra set on the end, do you ever tackle it like that?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially with, with the, the type of a of a progression where we're kind of increasing things in a linear fashion. Yeah. You know? If you run an eight-week block, sometimes the first block goes perfectly by the book. You know, the first half of the block, you just increase repetitions with a fixed load. The last half of the block, you increase load with fixed repetitions. Work perfectly. Start the second block. Well, now because we're heavier, overall tonnage is more. Maybe we can't get four sets of five with that particular weight or four sets of six or four sets of seven, whatever. Okay, it's four sets of seven. It's, It's 28 repetitions, you know. So that we can milk progression for as long as we can yeah. using this format. I'll just say, okay, you know what? Use the same load that we've been using this whole time. And we got, you know, four sets of three, four sets of four, et cetera, et cetera. But just get me 28 repetitions. Yeah. You know, maybe that's going to be the flip side. Maybe instead of doing four sets of seven, it's seven sets of four. Yeah. You know, um, and if you, you only have like one or two exercises that that's happening and everything else is going to plan, You can milk that progression that way for a long time sometimes. Sometimes you can get away with a whole nother block doing that. You know, but obviously, when everything's happening that way, all of your exercises, you're having to just milk out the the repetitions any way, shape, or form you can. Now we got to change to a different periodization. We got to change to a different progression, something a little more subtle. Um, But even me myself, I do that a lot. You know, sometimes I'll even kind of bury the load a little bit. You know, if Eric prescribes for me something like, a three by five with you know 125 kilos, I might do my first set with 120. I might do my second set with 125 and then I might do my third set with 130. The average is 125 yeah. kilos. The volume has been met, but it wasn't so hard for me in my mind you know, to get that first set at 125 kilos. I kind of gradually got into it. And yeah, then of course, yeah. is my, my movement got better Confidence, with each yeah. individual set. You know, sometimes that alone makes the, the load feel lighter. Yeah. That last set of 130 felt better than the first set yeah. of 120, you know? Yeah. So that's all I encourage my athletes to do with that a lot of times, too.
0: Yeah. So it's big picture stuff.
1: Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah.
0: I remember one of your podcasts, Brad. You mentioned that in your first ever prep, you made every mistake under the sun and you didn't have any high days through that prep. And when it came to pumping up, you couldn't get a pump and so forth. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about how you now incorporate high days, what a high day looks like for you, and how you determine how high you go on a high day, and why it's important now for you and your bodybuilders?
1: Yeah, for sure. And and, and that particular competition that you spoke of was actually my... Let's see. First, second. It was actually my third competition. Is your third um, that I did. My first one was actually pretty darn good, you know. And 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 God's given me the ability to get really, really diced. You know, I yeah. can really get low body fat. One time, my my one of my best friends used the little calipers and he clipped me at two point eight percent body fat. Wow. Um, so that's that's a very rare gift, you know, that, that we see. Um, but that particular competition that you you talk about, I was so depleted. You know, for so long, um, not incorporating any high days, just constantly in a deficit, you know, Um, I just couldn't fill up. You know, I just, my body was just using those carbohydrates for whatever it could. Yeah. The last thing it was going to do was replenish glycogen stores, you know. Um, And so, yeah, when we, with me, myself, you know, I, I, when I incorporate a, a high day, like I mentioned before, when I do my diet programming, I make sure that it fits into my weekly total, yep. right? So with me, I like to keep things kind of a little bit more steady as opposed to like a peak in, in a valley. And so a lot of times I'll just have if, if my maintenance is a mean average of 2,300 calories, uh, I'll live, you know, four or five days at, at 1,900 calories, you know, Uh, and then I'll just have a couple days of 2,500 calories, you know? And then when you, when you add that all up, the mean average of 2,300 calories, my mean average is 21, for example. Right. And so that's kind of the way that I do things for myself, you know, but at the same time, I'm a very experienced, flexible dieter and I can make sure that I'm satiated, you know, taking 1,900 calories and I'm not, you know, really hungry and I'm able to comply, you know, with doing that. Other people can't do that, you know? Um, so I guess I should back up a little bit and kind of talk about, you know, why do we do high and low days yep. and, and, and kind of periodize our nutrition? Please and really, do. to be honest with you, you know, there's traditionally the way that we've done diet periodization, you know, six low days, one day in a, a, a big high day in a, a, in a big deficit. I don't think that we have really any documented studies on utilizing that. But at the same time, anecdotally, we've got tons and tons and tons of just, people that that's worked you know yeah they perform better through their prep they stay a little bit fuller. they retain a little bit more muscle they can fill up and get a good pump on stage but the actual documentation is kind of more so comparing just a constant deficit which is kind of like my first bodybuilding prep right as to you know a period of, of maintenance days and then a period of just deficit days and when you compare those two forms of of um, dieting, you know, essentially what happens is is that they both lose the same amount of weight, but the, the, the group that, that did the diet periodization, they lost more fat. You yeah. know. So if they lost twelve pounds of fat, but yet both groups lost eight pounds, you know, what is, what is this other four pounds there? Well, that group there obviously retained muscle, you know, yeah. or at least maybe these were not advanced athletes that they did this in. Maybe they grew a little bit of muscle, and we yeah. talked about that body recom a little bit sooner. So the actual documentation kind of supports that that way of dieting through a periodization of high and low days. Um, you just retain muscle better that way.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Now, obviously, as bodybuilders, how we look on stage is going to be how much of our muscle did did we retain. You know, Jeff Alberts is competing. You know, shoot, sometimes. 10 pounds heavier now uh, than when he competed you know, a decade, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. That might lead you to believe, well, he's grown 10 pounds of muscle in his 20 years, right? No, not necessarily. He's just retaining a lot more of his original muscle
0: yeah, by the okay. end of his
1: competition prep. You know, If yeah. he was competing at 159, 160, Jeff and I kind of did the same thing back in the day. We just stayed in a constant deficit. Well, you lose a lot of muscle when you're yeah. doing that. He's he's dieting smarter. He's dieting longer, so he's just retaining a lot more of his muscle, which is allowing him to look bigger on stage, have more muscle on stage, be more conditioned on stage. You know, and when you're talking about an elite bodybuilder that's got really good symmetry, that alone right there is going to be a game changer. Yeah,
0: that that adds up. Those small details add up. So, what are the physiological benefits um, of a refeed? So obviously, retaining a muscle um, is one.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, body fat losses are a, a bit more advantageous. Yep. You know, just be, just because. I mean, obviously, all the hormonal issues that that, that happen. You know, when you're in a caloric deficit, you know, leptin levels are gonna go. You know. Up or down? I can't remember with the leptin and the ghrelin and all those things. But when you're when you're when you're in that deficit, I mean, you you kind of know this. You're hungrier, you know, and so the 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 hormone that that triggers hunger is going to be higher, you know. Whereas if you get that refeed in there, well, now that particular hormone is going to be a little bit more managed. Hunger levels are going to be not quite so high. You're going to be able to comply. Yeah, is kind of the bottom line. Um. But then, yeah, it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a physiology expert, but body fat is just seems to be able to be shed when you give it a break, you yeah. know, when, you're, when you give it a, a breath of fresh air to, ah, you know, and then go back underwater again. You know, the hormones are kind of reset, you know, yeah. the hunger issues are taken care of. The body just basically says, oh, well, we're not starving here. You know, yeah. we can lose this excess fat that, I mean, really it's a pain to keep anyway, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not real familiar with all of the, the physiologic issues, you know, as far as, as the advantages of having yeah. that higher day in there. But we've sure got a plenty of anecdotal and yeah. a little bit of, of actual studies that support it.
0: Yeah. And as you get leaner and leaner through the course of a contest prep, Do the magnitude and frequency of your refeeds typically increase? Or is it very case-by-case, individual-dependent?
1: Yeah, it's very case-by-case. and This is what really kind of keeps us coaches now, is that we can recognize trends, we can recognize behaviors of the athlete, we can recognize changes in body composition and in body fat and whatnot. because just like with training, you know, we know that periodization works. Same thing with diet. However, how many different forms of periodization are there? Tons. Yeah. You know, and you gotta pick and choose your spots. When is the time to go more intensity? When is the time to drop intensity and go more volume through reps and yeah. Same thing with diet. When is the right time to dig hard and maybe take away a high day or two? When is the time to diet break and say, okay, this is a period of time where we need to get more high days in. yeah, That varies tremendously from athlete to athlete. Yeah. And it's really, it's a very um, intimate relationship with the coach and the client, you know, where it's like we got to know, okay, this is how things have traditionally happened. And, you know, this is the best call to make, you yeah. know. And it's not right or wrong. You know, and sometimes it's just a matter of the interaction over weeks and weeks and weeks with the athlete that kind of tells us, this is probably the best way to go you know so that's what keeps us in business is that we can coach you know we can call what we feel is the right play at that time we're not always right but at least we're right a lot of the time
0: yeah for sure and with your bodybuilding you did back-to-back seasons brad 07 08 and 09 correct
1: I did actually 06, 07, 08, and
0: 09. I did four. Wow.
1: Back to back, yeah.
0: Um, in my personal experience, I did two seasons back to back, and that was quite an ordeal for me personally. How did you go, well, I thought you did three, and I thought that was crazy, doing four?
1: Um, I regret it, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a great time. I won my pro card in in 08. You know, I competed as a pro in 09 in my very first, you know, pro competition. Um, You know, and at the time, social media was in its infancy, you know, and so you didn't really compare yourself to all the people that are out there. Yeah. You know, you were kind of in your little Petri dish, and so you thought you were the man, you know, and you just had this elitist attitude of, you know, I can do this, you know um, like I told you kind of at the beginning, I'm a dedicated guy, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's a CAT scan, you know, my relationship with my wife or bodybuilding. I, I'm, I'm a hundred percent, you know, and I really try hard, you know, and maybe it's not a hundred percent of some people, it's a hundred percent of what I can do. Yeah. And so I just, you know, there's accountability there. I had a, I actually had a best friend that was a bodybuilder and, we were helping keep ourselves accountable, you know, through periods of time. We were checking in with each other. How are you doing? It's Christmas time. How much food did you have, you know, and or did you stay within your ranges, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just kind of the, I guess that, that thing that we all have in us, that dedication, yeah. you know, that, that desire for what it is that we do. And so we just, we just do things that I guess normal people wouldn't necessarily do. You know what I mean? Um, do I regret it? Yeah, you know. At the time, I didn't really know about progression over time, you know, I, or at least I knew about progression. That's kind of the nice thing that I've been right off the bat. If I knew about progression in training, yeah. but I didn't think of it in terms of years. Yeah, you know, I just kind of thought of it in terms of week to week to week, and you know, prep to prep, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and and so yeah, that was the one thing that I was lacking is that. You know, I I could have progressed a lot more in strength, Yeah. you know, and I could have progressed a lot more in muscle had I not been doing so much dieting and kind of holding myself back and just saying, okay, I need to make sure that during this year I don't get over 170 pounds, you know, Um,
0: and that kind of held me back a little bit. And do you advise to your athletes to have alternating years out of competing or do you let them dictate when, when they compete?
1: I mean, obviously, they're the boss, you know, and so whatever they want to do, I'm going to try to guide them as as best I can, but I kind of let them know, you know, I'm going to give you what you want, here, and I'm going to do my best, but it's just not optimal, you know. If it's a 50-year-old athlete, you know, and and they're kind of maybe thinking this is the end of my bodybuilding career, I want to get as much out of it as I can, you know, maybe sometimes they look really good because they have been doing bodybuilding for a long time. Yeah, maybe I'll let them... Do a back to back to back season, and I'll just guide them as best as I can and just let them know look, we would be it'd be more beneficial if we did get a period of time where we had a nice offseason, we had 12 months to eat at maintenance or a surplus or whatever. Um, and so yeah, I would let them do that now. Young athletes, I am a little bit more insistent, I guess you might say you know, especially if it's, it's early in their, their bodybuilding career, I'll say, okay, look, when we're done with this competition. I know that you've got the bug, and I know that you want to compete, but you're 18, 19, 20 years old. You're early in your, 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 your lifting career. Now is the time where we really, really need to take advantage yeah. of our muscle building potential because it's never going to be as good as it yeah. is right now. Yeah. You, you know, sure. we need to really strongly consider not doing another competition. Sometimes they listen. Sometimes they don't, you know, but either way they're the boss and I'm just going to let them know here's the real world. Here's what, you know, we could be taking advantage of. Here's what could happen and then, you know, just guide them to whatever it is that, that they want.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's what coaches are here to do, guide the process, right?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah.
0: And we'll finish up, Brad. I've got two questions for you. So obviously calorie intake during a contest prep, gradually decreases, um, whether you look at it over daily or weekly uh, scale. But we always hear about these stories of, you know, bodybuilders, figure competitors who, you know, diet down, get shredded, striated glutes, on stage, no cardio, 2,000 calories, 3,000 calories. Um, but is that realistic for most people? And yeah, it's
1: it's, it's <laughs> that, that that is a very lucky person. And yes. we know one of those people, don't we? <laughs>
0: yeah, we do. Go
1: ahead, what was the rest of your question?
0: And how low have you seen somebody's calories get with either your athletes or one of the 3DMJ athletes to get the result and get on stage?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, in the first part of your question, you know, that's a very rare thing when, like, an athlete does no cardio. They diet on three thousand calories, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, shoot, probably. I mean, Alberto is a good example. You know, he had a lot of times will do minimal cardio, diet on, on very high calories, and it's just the way that God made him. You know, he's yeah. got that squirrel's metabolism where he's just, you know, everything he does, he's just racing through it. He, yeah. he fast for a day, he drops nine pounds. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's a rare thing, you know, and I've, I've seen people that, that go through that. Obviously, they're a, a kind of a a gift for us because it gives us a lot of room, yeah. you know, to diet, even though they're dying. You know, yeah. it's all relatively speaking. They may be dying on, on 2,500 calories, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's not it's not the norm. You know, I'd say that that's that's 5, 15 percent of people, maybe. Yeah. Um, And to really think that you can turn, at one time, I believe I could turn my metabolism into that, through, you know, reverse dieting, I would be able to, but, you know, we really can't, it's almost like changing our eye color, you know, it's like, really what our lifestyle at that period of time is, is, is is what is going to dictate what our metabolic, you know, ability is, and just through, you know, expenditure for what it is that we're doing, um, So yeah, that's a rare thing, and you really—I'm not going to turn my metabolism into Albertos. You know, it's never going to happen unless I start doing a construction job where I'm expending thousands of calories a day. You know, Um, but then yeah, the second part of your question, which was, oh, how low? How low have I seen calories? You know, and really, to be honest with you, it depends on the athlete. Now, I've seen 98 pound female bodybuilders get tremendously low
0: so that's 45 kilos and how low did they get
1: it, you know I've seen them get as low as is 900 calories yeah. you know on a couple two three days With you know and, a diet well. period of
0: and
1: you know that's that's obviously not where we're gonna take a 180 pound bodybuilder yeah. whether it be female or male you know yeah. um, that would be kind of detrimental so low for that person might be 1,500 calories, 1,400 calories on on a few days in the diet periodization, you know. Uh, But I think the lowest people are those little, tiny athletes. You know, we've even had a a, a few male competitors that have competed at less than 100 100 pounds. Um, What's that? 50 kilos, 45 kilos, something like that. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of the size of the body. But those are always the athletes. The smallest athletes are always the ones that end up traditionally dieting on the lowest numbers.
0: And when you have these athletes diet down, one of the biggest issues with bodybuilders coming out of a contest prep is the rebound um, in mm-hmm. body weight. And obviously if somebody's on such low calories, they're going to be ravenous and their biological drive is going to be to consume anything and everything. Yeah, How do you deal with this on a personal level and with your athletes?
1: Well, I, I relate a lot of what I have experienced personally to my athletes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, let's face it. When you come out of a bodybuilding prep, there's perfectly optimal. This is what we want to do that's going to work the best, yeah. right? And then on the other side of the spectrum, we've got what is adherable, you know? Uh, what, what can they do? You know? And we have to find somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? So obviously... If I think that this is perfectly optimal and this is what we need to do, and they can't adhere to it, we're setting them up for failure. Yeah. You know? And so we can't do that. We've got to try to find what is adherable first and foremost. And if a person, if I set them up to what I think is probably less optimal, but they're going to gain the least amount of weight, that's kind of what I'm going to do. And sometimes it's a process, you know what I mean? Um, But I mean, I always prepare them first of all. I say, okay, look, you know what, I know that you're, you know rock solid in your execution. I know that you're just you know dedicated, your desire is high, and you're gonna stick to the plan. But trust me, you're gonna come out of this thing. I don't know if you've seen Finding Nebo, but when you saw Bruce the Shark get a sniff of Dory's blood, he lost his freaking mind. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when well, you're That's coming out analogy. of the bodybuilding prep, yeah. you get the sniff of that food, you lose your freaking mind. You yeah. know, we had an athlete one time report into Jeff says, I can't stop eating.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We all know that That's feeling. gonna
1: happen. Yeah. That's gonna happen. And you gotta prepare prepare them for that, you know. So you just gotta say, okay, look, here's here's optimal. You were at fourteen hundred, we're gonna eat at two thousand. I don't think you can stick to two thousand. I think you're gonna be driving yourself nuts trying to stick to two thousand. We're gonna go twenty three, twenty four hundred, you know. Yeah. And they we get sometimes get a little push back. But at the same time, it's like they understand it as it evolves. It's like, wow, you're right. I can't take a few thousand calories.
0: Yeah. You know, I I got
1: 2,800 on this day. Well, I'm not going to bash them for 2,800. Take an amnesia pill, move on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just do what we can do here, you know, prepare them for what it is that they're going to be in for here and then just try to manage it. I would much rather have an athlete do something suboptimal and taking 2,800 calories and gain six pounds. Yeah. Then you say, okay, here's optimal, take you 2,200. Set them up for failure, they take you 3,800, they gain 12 pounds. Yeah, you exactly. know? So we got to balance that.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you for that answer. That was spot on. To right. wrap up, Brad. Sometimes I
1: ramble. No, so I, nah, I love it. I love it. I can that, listen. I'm not necessarily answering your question I can here. listen to <laughs> it
0: all day. So to wrap up, Brad, um, what's next for you this year? Bodybuilding, powerlifting, what's What's on the menu?
1: Yeah, uh, good question. You know, it's going to take a lot to get me on the bodybuilding stage again.
0: Yeah. You know, it really is. Eventually.
1: I know what it takes. I know how hard it is, you know. Um, and, I mean, let's face it. I'm a competitive guy, you know. I, when I do something, I want to do well. You know, yeah. I want to place well. And for me, the way I'm built, you know, as wide as my hips are, as bad as my symmetry is, on the pro bodybuilding stage, I'm just not going to do very well. I've kind of come to grips with it, you know. And I know that it's all about improvement, self-improvement, you know. Um, but the bottom line is, is that I just know that I'm not going to place very well, you know. And I don't want to, as hard as I know it's going to be, I don't want to go through that for a second to last, you know. Yeah. Or yeah, I don't even sure. care if it's third to last. If it's third to last, that'll be my best placing ever. Yeah. And it's not good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's going to be a very non competitive thing that's gonna get me back on the bodybuilding stage. Yeah. Something where all four of us, Jeff, Alberto, you know, myself and Eric, and maybe if we can get Andrea, some sort of a mixed pairs thing, you know, <laughs> uh, all together on yeah. the same show, that would that would be the one thing that would get me back on the bodybuilding stage. Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, for me it's I love powerlifting. You know, I love the training of powerlifting. Um I love the feeling of being strong. I love being an example to my son, uh, you know, and to his friends and to my athletes. It's going to be powerlifting, you know, kind of for me. And it fits really well with my morals. You know, I mean, God says in the Bible, you know, those that lack discipline are bastards, you know, or something like that. I can't remember the exact Bible verse, but, you know, it just, it, it kind of fits with my personality. You know, it fits with me and my, my Catholic, you know, religion and just that discipline and yeah. I just, I, I, it all kind of feeds itself and it's just something that I love to do. So, you know, I'm probably going to do a couple powerlifting meets this year, yep. love to do Raw Nationals again. Raw Nationals is a very fun experience, I love competing against other drug tested athletes that I know yep. are, you know, not taking, um, you know, the, the, the stuff that helps. The Mexican, it, it there. The Mexican supplements. <laughs> Um, so yeah, definitely power lifting for me. I, I love I love the, the, the fact that I can place well be pretty competitive um, But you know the the, the the improvements are a little bit more tangible, yeah. you know if, if 409 was my Wilkes at 74 kg I'm gonna try for you know or him 11 whatever You know if 396 is my best Wilkes at 83 kg I'm gonna try to get in the 400. It's a lot more tangible as far as the numbers
0: deep yeah. in me you know, and it fits a little bit better. So
1: what what exactly competitions, I don't know, but it will be
0: powerlifting. Yeah, awesome. Well, Brad, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, giving us all that information and sharing your experiences. We can't wait to have thank you down you. to Melbourne in June mm-hmm. for the 3DMJ Down Under. That's going to be absolutely epic. And yeah, on behalf of myself and everyone watching, I'd really like to thank you for your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jacob. Thanks for having us on and thank you for all the
0: opportunities. Not a problem. Thank you, Brad.